Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. The Lord blessed me last year and I got to buy my first new vehicle. Now, it's not really a new truck. It's a, it's it it had 800 miles on it. Somebody bought it, and after 800 miles, decided it just wasn't for them. And uh, and so I was the benefactor uh, of um, quite a discounted vehicle. It was kind of fun. It's the newest vehicle I've ever owned, or probably ever will own. It has a shiny new used paint. It has shiny new used chrome on it, and it has shiny new used black tires. That kind of like. As I drive it around, or, or just drive it around, period, in great conditions. You know, the dirt from the farms and everywhere we drive around here, it gets all over this vehicle. His name is Chief. Chief gets dirty. But you know what I don't do? When he gets dirty, I don't drive back down to the dealership and say, hey, my truck's dirty. Well, you got another one? Maybe that's what the guy did with the 800 miles. Maybe 800 miles, the truck was dirty, and he turned out, I don't know. That's not what I do, and I don't think that's what you do either. And that's not what God does. That's not what our salvation talks about here. No, I take chief, and I simply go to my favorite turbocharged car wash. We didn't have turbocharged car washes in Southern California. You know the one that has 27 neon colors of flashing strobe lights as you go through And just like chief, when we receive salvation from God, we are completely washed and made clean. The cross washes away our sin forever. We receive the righteousness from Jesus. He took off our filthy rags from us. He took off his robe of righteousness and we traded in what I call the glorious exchange. Wow. The righteousness of Christ and, I, and he took on my filthy robes, stained with sin, and went to the cross, and he paid the price for my sin. I got grace for free. And so did you, if you have it. We don't have to go back to the cross and start all over again. No, Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. We simply need to confess our sin and have a foot wash. And move on. This is an important aspect in walking with God because Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, that's uh, quite a statement right there. I want to be washed. We need to confess our sin, sure, in order to have an unhindered communion with our Father and to experience holiness as God intended. The shorter we get from sin to confession, the quicker you will gain holiness with God and your relationship with God will grow. The longer that takes, the more painful that takes and the further from God we get in the process. So we want to keep a short tab, short, short order on our when we fall. Get back up. God, I blew it. I want, to, I want to move forward now. God says, okay, come forward. Your sins are already paid for. I already paid for it. We're just going to wash your feet. Now let's get walking again. Jesus exhibits three relationship practices. Practice number one, his humility with the Father. We see that. He trusts him. He's a humble servant. Practice number two, the holiness, which was explained to Peter. And here's practice number three, his blessings explained to all the disciples. 
he's going to now address all the disciples in the room. And he's going to explain how they can have joy in their life, how they can have happiness, how they can have blessings in their life. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, here it is, blessed are you if you do them. See, this isn't the great suggestion. This is the great commandment to love one another. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. He's going to say that in just a minute here. I've washed your feet, washed your neighbor's feet. What does that look like? When they get sick, call them up. When they are in the middle of a crisis, see if you can drop off food to them. We do that so well here. I love it. We call it meal train. You can sign up for meal train when someone's going through a crisis to just give them something to eat so they don't have to be in the kitchen. You can call them. You can write them. There's so many ways you can contact people now. Email, text, it goes on and on and on. You can hug them when you see them at church. You can whisper, hey, I'm praying for you, and then do it. We've got a prayer team that is voracious in their prayers. Every Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, join them. Come and pray for each other. Let me point out the sequence that, we just, that Jesus taught here with his life. A successful relationship strategy in proper order begins with being humble. Humble service to God. Number two, living holy lives. We confess our sins and then we move forward. We keep going forward. And then number three, blessings, contentment, happiness, joy are ours to experience. Blessings and joy are a result of a life lived in obedience to God. Humble obedience to God. When we walk in humility, loving God and serving others, when we pursue holiness by confessing our sin and keeping a short tab on that, then we can experience God's blessing and joy that He's promised in spite of everything going on around us. There can be a hurricane going on around us, but if you're walking humbly with your God, if you're confessing your sin and and maintaining a pure life with Him, it doesn't matter what's going on. You can stand in the eye of the storm where there's peace and you can walk with God through it. Humble and holy lives produce happy and healthy living. The world scratches its way to the top in empty pursuits of happiness while godly and humbly servants serve their way to the bottom and they discover God's blessings innumerable. Real peace isn't walking in the absence of storms. It's walking humbly and holy, hand in hand with Jesus in the eye of the storm. The world's problem is found in their question, what's in it for me? If I do this, what do I get? Jesus had every right to command His disciples to serve Him. He, he would have 
completely been right in the right if he'd have said, Peter, go don the towel and let's get everybody clean here. Wash the dirt off. He, that would have been well within his right as teacher and Lord. But he didn't. He got on his hands and knees and he did it. The world asks, how many people do you have working for you? Jesus asks, how many people are you serving? Three exhibits, three relationships, practices here. But he closes with a twist. He gives us one relationship practice to avoid at all costs. We've seen three positives, and now he's going to give us Judas. Number one, here's something to avoid. Judas's hypocrisy towards Jesus. His hypocrisy towards Jesus. Let that not be said about us. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you, Jesus said. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That's a quote. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. That's his father. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. I love John always. He always writes that little thing, you know, as if he's a little more loved than the others. I don't know. Peter, uh, Simon Peter, therefore mentioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Jesus is about to identify his betrayer. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. He, they, it's still going over their heads. They're still not getting They asked, who, di, who is this? And he says, whoever I dip this in the sauce, I'm going to hand this bread to him. That's my betrayer. They, he did that, and then they still don't see this. Some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things, uh, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. They just assumed that's why Judas left the dinner abruptly. I find it amazing that none of the disciples could identify who the traitor was among them. Judas was playing a, a pretty good role. He acted the part pretty good. He probably learned some of the sermons and then went and gave these sermons. When Jesus had sent them out two by two, he went. He was on the inside, and they had no idea of whom Jesus was speaking of. Listen, these three things will likely surprise me in heaven. Who's there, who's not there, and that I'm there. <laughs> I'm just being real with you. God's grace just blows my mind. Jesus quoted Psalm 41.9 back when I said this is a quote from the Old Testament. He quotes uh, Psalm 41.9 when David was speaking about a traitor friend that he had. David, King David knew what 
Jesus was feeling that night. He wrote this in a psalm, 41.9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's likely that King David was talking about his former friend and counselor, Ahithophel, who turned traitor against the king. He shared meals with the king. He sat at the king's table. He was an advisor to David. David shared every secret with him. And yet, Ahithophel turned his back on David. It's curious that both Ahithophel and Judas committed suicide by hanging after their traitorous acts, both of them. It's important to note here that Judas was not compelled to commit suicide or to do this traitorous act. The Holy Spirit did not compel him to do this because that would have made God the author of sin. Judas was completely responsible for his own actions, which God then used to fulfill his word. It's interesting that Jesus protected Judas's treachery until the final moments of that night. And I had to ask myself, why now? Why didn't he do it earlier? Well, he must have known that what would have happened if the other 11 were to find out that one of their friends was about to commit a heartless act of treason and murder against their Savior. If Peter had no qualms about attacking Malchus in the garden, well, you remember with his short sword cut off his ear? I think he was probably trying to split his head and missed. He's a fisherman, not a soldier. <laughs> but if that's, that was Peter's response to this soldier coming to arrest Jesus, imagine what Peter might have done if one of his own buddies was going to do what he did. I think the Lord just saved it for the last moment. They would all be together. All 12 sat, heard Jesus' teachings time and time and time and time. Three years, yet only 11 would respond in faith. Someone said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. You can hear the truth and have it melt your heart. Or you can hear the truth and reject it and harden your heart against it like Pharaoh did. I find it outrageous that Jesus washed Judas's feet. But His grace and mercy are outrageous. And I find it amazing that His grace and mercy melted my heart, and I'm so glad it did. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Isn't it like our Savior that in Judas's final moment with Him, Jesus sat him right next to him in a place of honor at the table, loving him till the bitter end. His grace, his mercy still extended, his love still extended to this man who would go then and betray him. Again, it's critical to note that Judas's actions were completely his own. Jesus, much earlier, had provided a grave warning, and it was directed right at Judas. Judas had already decided to turn Jesus over. You remember last week when Mary pours that costly oil over Jesus' head and feet, anoints him with this extremely expensive oil? What does Judas say? Why didn't she sell this and give it to the poor? Why did Judas say that? Well, he held the money bags and he would take from it, Scripture says. Judas is going, man, I could have skimmed off of this. And Jesus corrects him. 
openly corrects him. I think Judas took, yeah, he was mad at being called out. Because right after that, it says he went and met with the Pharisees, the leaders. I think that's when it began. Judas's heart is already hardened. Listen to what Jesus says, though, well before the upper room. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas heard this. Apparently he didn't internalize it or place any value on it. Didn't reflect on it. Judas was free to change his course, but he already made his decision and his heart was made up. A decision that our sovereign Lord already knew that he would make. God knew what was in Judas's heart and what he would do, and then even this he used for his glory. John adds an ominous detail here, and I caught it this time going through reading this scripture, particular scripture. This is the first time I caught it. Verse 30, having received the piece of bread, Judas, he then went out immediately. And here's these four words that hit me this week. And it was night. Why does John have to say that? We already know it's night. They're eating supper, for crying out loud. But he makes a point of saying, and it was night. Who went into the night? Judas. Who remained in the light? The eleven and Jesus. Light and darkness play opposite roles and provide two very different metaphorical pictures in the Bible. What business does darkness have with light? Scripture queries. They're two opposites. The world is always portrayed as dark, and Jesus, of course, is always the light. And then he would turn around and say, now you're the light. Tag, you're it. I'm going back to heaven. You bring light into the world. The moment that Judas left, the cloud of darkness cleared in the room, and the light overcame the mood in the room. You'll hear it now as we go forward. Now there's a change in the conversation. It's gotten more light now that the darkness has left. Judas, the darkness, the betrayer, has left. Jesus, the light, and love remains. Verse 31. So when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and glorify Him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, you remember not too many chapters ago, he told the Pharisees and some of their leaders that where I'm going, you cannot come. He was talking of his death, of course. And in those three days, no one could go with him. Verse 34, here's the new commandment. So Jesus says, look, we're going to make this real simple now. Here it is, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, it's one thing to say it. It's a whole different thing when you do it. I say I love my truck. How ridiculous is that? Play that one through. My truck doesn't love me. You can love a dog. You can love food. 
Now, Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about relationship, agape. Listen, a new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another. As I agaped you, that you also agape one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have agape. For God, agape is the deepest sense of love in the Bible. It's that love you have for your child. It's that love you have for a parent. It's that deep, abiding love that would cause you, perhaps, to lay your life down for that person. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Because love costs something. Agape costs you something. The other three forms of love, they, yeah, they're here and gone. If I feel like it, I love you. Mm-mm. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's going to cost you something to love the other person. It might cost you time. It might cost you money. But it's going to cost you something to love another person the way that Jesus has told us to love them. The key subject in John here, but even highlighted more here in chapter 13, is the glory of God and the command to love. Those are the two priorities in the entire book of John, but especially in chapter 13. So how can we bring glory to God? Because that's really the topic here. Jesus provides the answer by completing the purpose for which he's created us. Love God, love people. Jesus says, listen, let's make it simple. Love God and love one another. See, because if I love you, I'm not going to, you know, check out your spouse. If I love you, I'm not going to steal from you. If I love you, I'm not going to murder you. Jesus goes, you know, just take all these 612 commandments, put them all together, and let's just love the person. Because if you love them, you're not going to have a trouble walking with God or, or loving your neighbor. Jesus had glorified the Father with his life. Now the Father would glorify his Son in return by resurrecting him from the grave. How can you and I glorify God? By carrying out the mission he's given to us through living out our lives in obedience to his word and by loving one another. For the disciples, these things were really about to get hard. Life was really going to get hard in just a matter of hours. In fact, it was probably about 90 minutes from when this was said. They walk out of this room. They go down to the Kidron Valley. They go into the Garden of Gethsemane and their world gets shattered. Simon Peter, verse 36, said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me, my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus' command was perfectly timed for these disciples. They would desperately need to love one another over these next few days especially. Jesus was going to their master, their savior, their friend, would be forcefully taken, beaten beyond recognition, hammered to a cross, and put in a grave. They would need to love one another during the greatest, darkest night of their soul. And then not only that, their leader, Peter, who was kind of the assistant leader, he was on the inner ring with Jesus. Jesus used him to be their leader, spoke through Peter many times to them and 
Peter was always the first to talk. Peter, when Jesus went back to heaven, Peter would be one of the leaders that would start the church. But Peter even would fall away. These disciples, again, their world would get rocked. Not only is Jesus dead, but now Peter said he didn't even know who Jesus was. He denied him. Their world's shaken. These young in the faith men would need to love God and love one another to make it through. So let me ask you a question. Why should you come to church and not just sit here? Anybody can sit in a seat. Why should you come to church and put down roots here? Why should you come to church and do this thing called loving one another or, or serving one another? I've got friends that say, hey, look, pastor, <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong here. I, I love that some people go to church and I, I love what you do. But look, I, I, I go to church out on a river while I'm fly fishing. I go to church while I'm doing my kayaking down the river. I go to church when I see a beautiful sky and a sunset. And I say, who's going to be there for you when you get cancer? Who's going to be there when you lose your job? Who's going to be there? Who are you serving? Jesus said to serve. Who are you serving? Now, those things aren't wrong. I myself have gone down the river plenty of times and enjoyed it. And fishing? Yeah, absolutely. But it doesn't replace this. Because Jesus said, we're not to replace this. Don't forsake coming to church, especially right before he returns, before that great day, when times are going to get really difficult. We need to link arms, not go out solo onto the battlefield. I think you get what I'm saying this morning. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.